four-minute video to show you about the Friends of Israel ministry. Some of you may be aware of it, some of you may not be. Uh, and so we'll share this, and then after that I'm going to do my song uh, that you're going to do with me, uh, the No More Tears song, uh, and then I'll be sharing with you from Revelation chapter 21. The 1930s were a fragile time. Propaganda throughout Europe was already paving the way and dehumanizing the Jewish people. And in November 1938, Kristallnacht, Night of the Broken Glass, happened in Germany. Synagogues, homes, schools, and businesses of Jewish people were destroyed. And it was at this point things went from bad to worse. The Jewish people were ripped from their homes, put into ghettos, and sent to concentration camps where later, more than six million would be systematically murdered. Here in the United States, a group of Christians in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania had been praying for the Jewish people in Europe and were convinced they had to do more. In James chapter 1 it says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And that is what this group did. Something was stirred inside of them. And the Friends of Israel Refugee Relief Committee was born. And they started to put their time and money into saving Jewish lives. But why would they do this? Because they knew from Scripture that the Jewish people are God's chosen and the apple of His eye. After all these years, the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries mission has not changed and the Gospel is at the core of everything we do. Around the globe, our teams are serving Jewish people in need, providing food, medicine, clothing, personal care, and other basic necessities. Our free clinic in the heavily Jewish populated area of Buenos Aires, Argentina provides around-the-clock medical care for those in need. Bible camps in Poland and Israel for both children and adults give a safe place for learning God's Word. We support pastors and believers in Israel both spiritually and financially. Teams travel year-round to areas of Eastern Europe providing daily necessities to Jewish people in oppressed areas. In Australia and New Zealand, we're opening our homes to traveling Israeli soldiers. Our workers around the world are serving the Jewish people in practical ways by volunteering in area Holocaust museums, Jewish community centers, and caring for Holocaust survivors and their families. Our Bible teachers share in churches and conferences that there is and always has been a clear plan, a past, present, and future for Israel and the Jewish people. Resources like Israel My Glory magazine, videos, books, and the Friends of Israel Today radio program are shared around the world providing teaching on sound doctrine and a biblical perspective on current events surrounding Israel. The Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry loves bridging the Jewish community and Christians together. With anti-Semitism on the rise, we need advocates in the Christian community to stand with the Jewish people. Our tours to the Holy Land allow Christians to walk where Jesus walked and experience the miracle of modern-day Israel. Our volunteer trips, Origins and Ased, provide Christians a chance to serve alongside Israelis. These trips open Christians' eyes to the realities of daily life in Israel, but more importantly, it gives them a heart for the Israeli people. Our mission has stayed focused all of these years to teach biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while loving and standing with the Jewish people. We believe God's promises to Israel are never-ending. And the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries message has not changed because the Word of God never changes. God has called us to reach the nations and He has called us to love His chosen people, Israel. And just as our founders did in 1938, we stand with the Jewish people in their time of need. 
because we love what God loves. Pray for us at the Friends of Israel. Uh, we're in 10 different countries around the world and um, trying our best to share the gospel with Jewish people, but also to minister in concrete ways to them. The boundary, the barriers have been so strong over the years because of persecution in the name of Jesus uh, that it takes a lot of loving and long-term uh, loving socially and other things to convince them that we really do love them and then they'll listen to us about the gospel. So uh, pray for us uh, as we try to do our best. Okay, this is our time to sing together. You guys ready? Uh, this, uh, how many of you have already heard this song? Okay, the rest of you, I'll pick it up at least by the second line, the rest of you on the word God. <laughs> there on the first line. Uh, make sure you come in. Uh, uh, this is a song from my favorite passage, and like I said last night, because of that, don't mess this up, okay? And I'll try, I'll try my best not to mess it up, so, but follow me along. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow they won't cry. There shall be no more pain. For all things have passed away And God will be their God I heard him say He cried out from the throne I make all things new I'm Alpha and Omega Whose words are faithful and true I will freely give life to him Who really thirst And my greatest promise ever made There'll be no more hurt No more hurt no more pain No more tears will ever come my way again No more broken hearts God sent them all away Oh Lord, I wish that were today the time for God's kingdom has not yet arrived Till then I keep on serving Him with all of my life But I still can't help but wonder While I look ahead About the greatest promise ever made than God ever said No more hurt No more pain No more tears will ever Come my way again No more broken hearts 
God sent them all away. Oh Lord, I wish that were today. No more hurt, no more pain, no more tears will ever come my way again. No more broken hearts, God sent them all away. Oh Lord, I wish that were today. Oh Lord, I wish that were today. And all God's people said, You didn't mess it up. You did really well. And I have uh, led that song in some churches where there's like three of us singing. <laughs> and, uh, but you, uh, you seem to be in, you seem to like music. You seem to enjoy singing, worshiping the Lord. That's good. That's a good sign in the church. God bless you. Revelation chapter 21. There is no PowerPoint. So uh, those of you who have uh, visual needs will be dejected. <laughs> but as one of our Polish workers says sometimes he, when he gives a presentation, he says, no PowerPoint, no problem. So that's a little saying that we have at Friends of Israel. So we'll do it the old-fashioned way. And let me read the first verses through verse four, but we're gonna cover the first uh, eight verses and, and even highlight some of the other things going on in the chapter. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. You know, this chapter, uh, and, you know, the last two chapters together cover what we sometimes call the eternal state. I know some think this part is the millennium. I don't think so. I think you have the second coming in chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, uh, you have uh, the millennium, the thousand years. And, and, and we are premillennial. What does that mean? That means that Jesus comes back before the millennium, not at the end of the millennium, and not the view that there's no future millennium at all, uh, but we believe he's coming back before the millennium. Now, Brother Mike, why do you believe that? Simple. 19 comes before 20. <laughs> Chapter 19, second coming. Chapter 20, 
the thousand years. So Jesus comes back before the thousand years. That's why those who don't hold that view have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out ways to say that there's no chronology between those two chapters. It's pretty easy to show that there is. Uh, and uh, so we have the millennium, and then at the end of the millennium, we have the eternal state. It goes into this last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And in chapter 21, there is nothing negative said except one verse. And that's the last verse that we will talk about today. Uh, so let's get into it and see exactly what God has in store for us. First, uh, you see there Roman numeral two in the notes, uh, the new heaven and earth. In the first verse, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, the new earth, uh, we need to think about that, but first, what heaven is it talking about? You know, the word heaven in the Bible is used in three different ways. It's used of the sky, where the birds fly. It's used of celestial space, where the stars are. And it's used as the abode of God, the third heaven. Remember, Paul was caught up to the third heaven, the abode of God. The localized presence, God has a place. He's localized himself. Remember, God's everywhere all the time. But he's localized a place as his home. Call it the third heaven. Okay? And, and I think it has substance to it. It's not simply clouds and ethereal spirits and things like that. It has some substance uh, to it. And, but I don't think that's the heaven that's in, in view here because that's going to show up a little bit later in verse 2. Um, so here I think it refers probably to the sky. And so that the heaven and earth, the new heaven, new earth, that is the earth with its atmosphere, is going to be new. And so then the question becomes, what does new mean? Uh, is it talking about, as I say there in my third bullet there, purification or annihilation? And I have good friends on both sides. And if you disagree with me on this, I'll have a hamburger and a milkshake with you, um, especially if you pay. Um, uh, but uh, this is not a major doctrine difference. But I lean toward the idea that it's purification by fire. We talked about that a little bit last night. Um, if it's annihilation, the, the old planet is just burned up and gone, and God makes a brand new planet. And it's certainly possible that that's what God is planning to do. Uh, there's one passage that gives me pause, and I just wanted to run that by you in Romans 8. If you go over to Romans 8, verse 20. Well, let me go back up. Let's get a running start. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then Romans 8, 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. I think that's the manifestation for God lets the world know who his true sons are. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, in other words, the curse came upon the earth because of, not, not because of creation, 
Creation had no choice in it. But because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So he says that creation will be delivered. It'll be redeemed. It'll be saved. Now when you go back to Revelation 21, it's hard for me, now maybe I'm wrong on this, but it's hard for me to look at annihilation as redemption or deliverance. Something unique has to happen. So I, I lean toward purification by fire. I know the language is strong in 2 Peter 3 and other places, but I lean toward purification by fire, and then it seems to make better sense to me that the earth is truly redeemed. Not just people on it, but the actual creation based on Romans 8. And then have that one other, probably the most odd thing in verse 1. Also, there was no more sea. Now, wait a minute. Don't we like going to the beach? You know, and a lot of people, you know, does that mean there's no water? You know, a little log cabin there by the pond? You know, can't have that. You know, what, what in the world is that all about? No more sea. And that's, that's a tough one. Could it mean something else, though, within the book of Revelation? You know, we do believe, even though we, are, we take a literal understanding of the Bible, what that means is we take it at face value. It doesn't mean that we don't believe there are no metaphors in the Bible or figures of speech. It doesn't mean that we don't believe there's symbolic language here or there in the Bible. Uh, at all, but it just means we're not running around looking for hidden meanings that are imaginary. We're looking for things the text actually supports. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, what is some of the things you go, well, what's the word see? How's it used in the book of Revelation? Well, you remember the beast who is the Antichrist who comes out of the what? Out of the sea. And he's coming out, the picture coming out of Daniel is the, out of the sea of the nations. As you stand, kind of visualize standing on the beach in Tel Aviv, looking out at the Mediterranean and out west, you know, the nations, the beast. And what happened in the previous chapter, in chapter 20, before the great white throne judgment, there's that last rebellion of the nations against God that he puts down. And so it could be, and I make this suggestion, that when it says no more sea, it means no more sea of rebellion against the Lord. In context, that may make sense. Otherwise, uh, get used to being landlocked. <laughs> okay, then verse two mentions a new Jerusalem. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice there seems to be a location change here for God. Verse 3 is going to confirm that. But the holy city, New Jerusalem, it's almost like the abode of God is changing its address from the third heaven to the new earth. But then also, notice how it's described. It's holy, it's set apart, it's special. And notice 
it mentions its beauty. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen an ugly bride? You know, I've, I've done a lot of weddings as a minister. I have never seen an ugly bride. You gals have an ability to make it look good. And I always sneak a peek at the groom when she's in the back about to come down the aisle and the music starts and she's right there and he sees her, he finally sees her for the first time. I always take a little sneak peek at him to look in his eyes to see how he's responding to that. You know, the spirit of that moment is exactly how God wants us to feel when we read this text. See, God is bringing this to us, for us, like a bride coming down the aisle to a groom. There's something beautiful that God has in store for us. But notice the portrait of the city that is given in great detail. If you come down to verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And I think he said, I'm going to show you the place where the bride lives. This is her future home. I'm going to show it to you. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And I know some theologians leave it coming out of the sky and then it stays up there like a Star Trek celestial city on a cloud. I don't think that's the point. I think it's coming to the new earth. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes, the children of Israel. You know, the dimensions of the city are big enough to have Israel inside it. That's interesting. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth and height are equal. Uh, Different translations of that, of what 12,000 furlongs is, 1,500 miles. Some say 1,200 miles, 1,300 miles, the difference in the translations. It's because the word, the Greek word there is stadia. And the, the stadia is, is a length in the Roman Empire that was not uniform. Every city had its own stadia. It was basically the circumference around the stadium in that city. And that's what they used to measure by. So they're varying ones, that's why. It's basically trying to have an educated guess and how many miles that might be. But it's 12,000, basically 12,000 stadia. That's what it means. And God knows. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Have you seen a city like that? Philadelphia is not like that. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, 
the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. I had to practice to read that. I'm not, I'm not sure I have seen all those gems. Then the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. That's a big clam. <laughs> uh, but maybe God can make it without the clam. I'm sure he can. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. You see, folks, the idea of pearly gates and golden streets? That wasn't made up by preachers. It's in the text. It's in the Bible. And you say, well, it's just, it's just flowery language for something that's great and we don't know what it is. Well, wait a minute. God gave it to us for a reason. He gave us the details for a reason. And although it can be more than what the text says, it cannot be less than what the text says. The beauty of this place that God is bringing to us. But notice something that's more important than that. You know, some people want the log cabin. I want the golden condo, okay? But more important than that is verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So when the new heavens and new earth, when the new Jerusalem comes down to the new heavens and new earth, God comes with it. You say, well, that's no different than before. Uh, yes, it is. In the millennium, where's Jesus? He's in Jerusalem. Maybe he'll travel around. But when he comes back in the second coming, where's he coming to? Washington, D.C.? No. He's coming to Jerusalem. That's where the second coming. He lands on the Mount of Olives, right across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem, the old city, Mount Zion. And then he walks in. That's where he rules and reigns from, is Jerusalem. That's the home, and Jesus is there. But... Where's God the Father in the millennium? The way the text reads, God the Father is still in the third abode. I know he's everywhere, but his localized presence is the third abode, heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. And, and so what we see here in the end is that the fullness of the triune God finally comes into the full presence of men, men, men and women who know the Lord. Right now, you and I, we have moments of glimpses that are special where we feel God. We sense Him. Then, it's almost like it'll be intuitive because the presence of God will be so full around us. It's almost hard for us to visualize and think about because it's so foreign to our own experience. But God is bringing his presence like nothing 
ever before. It will change everything. Now notice, if you come down to verse 22 of chapter 21, it says, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The temple represented the presence of God. No need for a temple because the fullness of God is right there. No need to have a place like an earthly building. They said the city had no need of a sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates will not shut, be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So it's a perfect place. And fullness of God prevents there being any defilement, as the next verse says. Then in chapter 22, verse 4. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Boy, there's that name stuff again. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And notice this, and they shall reign for a thousand years. Is that what it says? Have you, have, you know, the, you know the, uh, Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus? You remember the line? And they shall reign for a thousand years. Doesn't go that way, does it? They shall reign forever and ever and ever. Yeah, there's the reigning for a thousand years in Revelation 20, but there's more. See, that's just the kickoff party here. They reign forever and ever. And the full presence of God makes sure that that takes place. But then we come to my favorite verse in the Bible. And it's verse 4. My very first sermon I preached ever to a church in 1977. I preached on Revelation 21.4. We have it on cassette tape. Did you guys know what a cassette tape is? Uh, I will never let you listen to that sermon. Hopefully I've improved some since then. Um, but notice God's action. It takes God's ultimate, full, triune presence to do away with the curse. Look, when it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there should be no more death or sorrow or crying, no more pain for the former things have passed away. In verse 5, behold, I make all things new. They said to me, right for these words are true and faithful. He says, you can take this to the bank. This is your future if you know me. That's, the context of that is verse 3. The Lord has come to be with his people. In the fullest way possible, therefore, there cannot be any tears. Maybe they're happy tears, but no sad tears. No death, no sorrow, 
nor cry. In Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And I want you to know something. This is more than Adam and Eve ever had. The Bible starts in a garden. It ends in a city that's like a garden. It starts with people who were innocent and perfect, but who had the possibility of sinning and dying. Will that be true for us? Can 10,000 years after we're, we're there, can we say, I'm going to rebel against God? No, you won't be able to do that. You won't want to. You'll never be able to sin, and you'll never be able to die. There is no more curse that great enemy death and all other enemies are done away. I made a list of some things. Okay, what things will not be in God's coming kingdom in this part, in the eternal state? What are some things that won't be there? I made a list, and I want to go through the list with you. It's about 40 things. I put a few humorous ones in there just to make sure you stay awake. But I want you to think about this. It's easy to make a list maybe of hundreds of these. Things that are in our experience now that will not be in our experience then. Okay. First one, no shots at the doctor's office. No more doctors. No more hospitals. No dentists. No root canals. No funeral parlors. No funeral sermons, no funeral directors. No surgery. No bad reports from checkups. Our A1C will always be perfect. No bald heads. No teeth that slip. No walking with a limp. No wheelchairs. No high blood pressure. No diets. <laughs> no loneliness. No bitterness and anger. No stupidity. <laughs> no road rage. No long lines at the airport. No Al-Qaeda terrorists. No ISIS. No Hamas. No Hezbollah. No car accidents. No telephone calls in the middle of the night. No nursing homes. No rebellious children who bring sorrow to your heart. No abusive parents. No parents who don't understand you. No Democrats. <laughs> you know what the next one is, don't you, on my list? No Republicans. And if I was in some churches that I know are heavily Democrat, I start with the Republicans, go backwards. No Green Party, no politicians. No political advertisements on TV. The only thing we'll hear is, I am God and I approve this message. 
No lawyers, no IRS, no serial killers, no wasps, especially those that have stingers. Maybe they'll be wasps, but they won't have stingers. No broccoli that tastes like broccoli. <laughs> It'll taste like fried chicken or chocolate ice cream. No dog bites, no snake bites, no sprained ankles, no thorns on the roses, no husbands that walk out on you, no divorce, and if I understand the text, no marriage, no broken engagements, no fights with your boss, no pink slips, no bills, no bad relationships that make you cry, no trashy music, no bad TV programs, no bad movies, no bad language, no pornography, no perversion, no temptation, no bad thoughts, no pets that die, no armies, no bombs, no missiles, no goodbyes, no tears of sorrow, no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no more broken hearts. You see, this is concrete, folks. This is not just ethereal, abstract stuff. It's concrete. This is the destiny that God has called us to if we have trusted his son as our savior. We have a home awaiting us that is beyond our wildest imagination. When's the last time you thank God for that future that he's given you? But notice the citizens of the city, both positive and negative. Notice who gets in. In verse 6, the positive, those who thirst. He said it's done. It's a different Greek word than when it said it is finished on the cross, but it's the same concept. The two big places, what the first coming accomplished and what the second coming and the ensuing frame of things has led to, it's done. I am the Alpha, the Omega. First and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And in Revelation 22, 1 and 2, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and, on the, and of the Lamb, and in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now that doesn't mean that people get sick. Uh, it's kind of a therapeutic refreshment kind of thing, not uh, making sick people well. And so very strong passage there, but notice in verse six again, it says, I'll give the fountain of the water of life. How? Freely to him who thirsts. The one who's thirst, spiritually thirsty and reaches out by faith, as the rest of the book tells us, to trust God for salvation. That person, I'll give it to him freely. That tells us it's not by good deeds. We don't earn our way to heaven. How many times have we said that through all our messages? It's, it's everywhere in the Bible. Uh, and so here we come freely by grace. So those who have experienced the grace of God, and it says those who overcome, calls them overcomers. We saw that with the 
church in Philadelphia in the last session, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then in verse 27, you come down there, and it tells us another way of describing the people that are in this city, those whose names are in the book of life. It says, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you have people who have trusted Christ, spiritually thirsty. They're called overcomers. Overcomers are on the, make it in by faith. Their name is in the Lamb's book of life. Have you trusted Christ? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, for deliverance? If you have, this is your home. You're a citizen of this great place. But there is a negative. That is, who's not in there? Verse 8. This is the saddest verse in the book of Revelation. Perhaps. Maybe by the end of chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. But it says, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All these people that are described here end up in the lake of fire. You say, well, wait a minute. I kind of find myself in that list. Maybe I haven't murdered somebody, but cowardly, maybe that's me. Maybe I've been immoral. Maybe I've lied. In fact, last night, most of you told me that you lie. <laughs> you know, the point of this is, the people who don't know Christ, they'll have to stand before God as they are. And how are they? They are things like this, and I don't take this as a comprehensive list. They stand as they are, cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, whatever they've done, they stand before God that way. And they pay the ultimate price in the lake of fire. I want to tell you, there are verses in the Bible that I would really like to scrub out. And this is one of them. But I can't do that, it's God's word. This is real. This is serious. But what it means for us, what it means for us, is that we need to do our best, dead level best, to reach our family and friends for Jesus before it's too late. And we need to be serious about that task that God has assigned to every believer, not just to the pastors of churches. I pastored for 31 years. I understand the difficulties in sharing faith. I also understand the difficulty in getting Christians in churches to share their faith. In the early church, uh, people had trouble. They couldn't shut up the Christians. In our times, people, in our culture at least, are very reluctant to speak out and say anything on behalf of the great Savior who has saved us and given us so much. Let me encourage you to get past that. And, and I don't mean to go around up and down the halls of, of businesses, beating people on the head with the Bible. I'm not talking about that. I'm 
talking about a balanced, reasonable presentation of, of faith in Jesus to the family and friends that you have, in the sphere of influence that you have, and pray for God to give you openings to share. Because if nobody shares with them and they don't respond ever and trust Christ, this is their destiny, verse 8. And that's the sad part. See, we want as many people to live with us. In verse 4, it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your written word once again. We thank you for its power. Thank you for the imagery that really seizes our minds and our hearts, makes us think. And Lord, we do have many friends and relatives, loved ones who don't know you. We pray for them. And we ask you, Lord, to help us. Give us some boldness. Give us some courage to say something and to help them see Jesus so that they too can join us in the most beautiful place of all time and the end of all hurt, your greatest promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we do thank you that even now you're seated upon your throne. None of us here has even yet physically seen your son. We thank you for that promise of the triune God dwelling here. We know that Emmanuel was God with us, and the Son of God's been here before, and he's coming again, and we rejoice in that. And Lord, the future is so bright and so wonderful for us and incomprehensible. We know that the present is very dark. Your word does tell us that the world lieth in wickedness. But we are children of the light, and help us to spread that light, help us to be the light of the world and, and the salt of the world. And Lord, help us to apply what we've heard. Help us to rejoice in what we've heard. Help us to long for and watch for your coming. Help us to be people of hope and people of faith and people who make a difference in everything we touch for your glory and by your grace. Thank you for bringing Dr. Stallard here to share these wonderful truths from your word. Help us, Lord, to be anchored in them. And when we doubt, Lord, we pray that we would use that shield of faith to conquer the fiery darts of the wicked one. May we occupy till you come. Thank you for this church that is occupying, that is standing for you. Thank you for the Bible Institute and all involved in it. Lord, we know Pastor Phil was one of those people launching a second track for those who wanted to add more in number to that. And we do pray, Lord, for both his family and this church family in his absence. We know that his absence here means he's present with you. May that comfort us and may you fill the void that exists here as only you can. And we're trusting you to do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.